Oh my goodness, the, the machine just talked back to me when I started recording our podcast here. Anyway, <laughs> uh, welcome everyone, and uh, it's Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree here. I'm Nicholas Larimer, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are you? Howdy, howdy. Privet. You know, I'm a bit worried that the machine suddenly started, started talking back to me now. Um, the, the recording software was announcing that I was now recording, which is very disturbing. I feel like our AI what? overlords it. One step closer Mother to Congress. Mother Bill Gates is listening. <laughs> it's okay. We are going to say very good things about all of the elite powers. Our yes. overlords, our grandmasters. Hail the Tsar. Hail the Tsar. Um, so we are late, of course. Um, we had a busy weekend from the Institute side. Uh, we were recording, or rather we were uh, doing our council meeting, which is one of our important annual functions. It's kind of like our AGM in some ways. Um, where we talk about strategy for the next year. It's an interesting session. Um, yeah, i got to say, it is great. I I really love it when you get a lot of classically liberal-minded people in a virtual room together and uh, and you invite them to sort of just go at each other's throats. I thought that there yeah. was a super combination of friendliness and criticism and... A little bit of yeah, talking no, past one another sometimes. But. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and that's actually the thing. And I think it, it illustrates something about the, the one of the challenges liberals face, which is the fact that, uh, you know, we had a meeting of, what is it, less than 50 people. And yet it felt like there were 15 different factions in the room in some places. Yeah. <laughs> All well, it's, also, it's not just a liberal thing. It's also a writer thing, right? Because everyone's yeah, got yeah. their identity staked out by their ideas. A lot and of opinions. And to be useful, you kind of have to have a different idea. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think it was really well managed, and I'm super glad about the way that our new president managed that and kind of emphasized the – I took him to emphasize the nature of of friendship. So, you know, Two Crickets is partly hosted on this platform, The Daily Friend, and yeah. I think friendship is something that I'd love for us to talk about more deeply on another occasion. Aristotle's view of friendship, uh, Foucault's view of friendship – um, uh, the Montesquieu's view of friendship, Nehemiah's view of friendship, some of the great philosophers I think who've written on the topic. Um, but but sort of one of the things that they all seem to agree on, people who've thought seriously about friendship, is that friends friends dis friends. Yeah, yeah, it's what uh, it's one of the sweet fruits of. Oh, you've got to add some spice to the sweetness of friendship. Um, yeah. I must say I'm not very strong on the theoretical aspects of friendship. More, I'm more a sort of practical man when it comes to that. Uh, that field. No, but you're a great friend uh, because you diss me all the time. Yeah, no, you exactly. Tell me I'm an idiot you, whenever you think I'm being an idiot. Because you talk too much and you have funny ideas. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you, you you benefit from being smarter than me, though, which helps. <laughs> helps uh, help I don't that. <laughs> um, so I guess we have to talk about the thing that everyone in intelligentsia world is talking about. Uh which is, of course, um, the coming global apocalypse between the two world's most populous powers. No, wait, that's not it. It's <laughs> a series of... <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. It's a series of protests and riots and uh, general dissatisfaction of some sort or another from pretty much everyone um, over... Well, it's sparked by the killing of a man called George Floyd in the United States by a police officer who sort of... It seems almost through callousness really murdered him. I mean, that's that's yeah. how it feels. 
looking at the, the the horrible video that was taken of the incident. Um, and of course, now we've got protests all around the world. The United States, of course, where some of it was accompanied by looting, some of it turned into looting, um, which is not a very comforting and, and, idea. And murder. So I, yeah, I do want to start off by saying, I, I, so I, I did an interview on CGTN, China Global Television Network, last week, uh, and just did a Daily Friend podcast. I really do think it's good to start out by saying, uh, you know, we condemn in the strongest possible terms the the killing of George Floyd at the hands of the police when he was already sort of uh, put in a position of zero threat. Uh, yeah. That, that, that's a very nasty business. And I welcome the prosecution of the, all of the officers involved, their day in court, uh, let it come speedily and uh, let justice be done. For uh, sure, for sure. Um, but I think one of the things that's happened here is that this has very quickly become about more than police, uh, the way the police interact with people. Um, the sort of race narrative of this thing was slathered on top of it. And we don't really know that race actually played a role in this in this uh in this police killing um it's kind of just assumed because it sort of fits this pre-existing story about how uh cops particularly white cops interact with black americans um and the one of the weird things though is the sort of i guess you could call them solidarity protests but they don't describe themselves as solidarity protests by people in the uk and even there was one in japan a country that has almost no police killings um, and most of the rhetoric is about, you know, revolution into systemic racism, uh, all these really big topics. Um, so there's a lot more going on here than just tackling police brutality, which is, you know, there, there's, I think, some things that we as kind of liberty minded people can really agree with, for, uh, at least in the U.S. Um, there's certain doctrines like, for example, qualified immunity, which means that it's very easy for police officers to sort of get off from uh from being prosecuted if they kill someone in the line of duty, um, even if they were, you know, being reckless. Uh, there's, you know, uh, oh, too many laws, and this is something not just the U.S. suffers from, but a lot of countries. I mean, South Africa arguably has far too many laws, um, which encourages a kind of over-policing of a sort, which is weird to think of in South Africa. But, you know, uh, when you're in, always going to be in violation of some law, it opens you to abuse by police. Um, something yeah. that's very common in third world countries. I mean, if you drive through Mozambique, you'll you'll encounter this problem where uh, the police can fine you for 400 million things, um, and they use it usually as an opportunity to extract a bribe from you. Uh, yeah, it's like being skinny fat, right? So exactly. being skinny fat means you've got like very little muscle mass, but you've got a lot of fat. So you, you're too skinny and you're too fat. I think a lot of countries, are, well, South Africa is like, is under-policed and over-policed. Yes, yes, at the same time. Um, so I think, you know, those are things that we definitely get on board with. Uh, but one of the things that the uh, Black Lives Matter, so, you know, to call it, it's not really a coherent movement. I think it has a lot of different branches and local franchises and stuff that differ. Um, but the kind of ones that seem to have the official banner, I think the ones that own the website, that that run the Twitter account, etc., they got some pretty pretty radical ideas, um, including this term that's thrown about a bit without a lot of definition, uh, which is defund the police, which is now what they're calling for in the United States. Um, and 
you know, depending on who you ask, that seems to have a different definition. Some people say oh, that just means reduce police budgets, reduce the militarization of police in the U.S., um, something that there's a parallel for in South Africa, the fact that our police have kind of a military uh, structure and names and ranks and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, they, they, they say we want to defund them a bit, take down some of their money and then give it to, you know, social welfare programs. That's the soft version of defund the police. The hard version of defund the police is uh, get rid of the police entirely and then we'll be able to prevent people from... Uh, you know, committing crimes by tackling the social issues that cause crimes, which yeah. is, I'm just going to say it's a bit crazy. Like when I, when I first read about this idea, I thought, no, surely I'm missing something. Surely there's a more to it. And it's based on this kind of very sort of almost like stereotypically a uh, cartoonish and uh, softness that if you just have some social workers and you decriminalize drugs, people won't commit crimes. Uh, that you can that all crime is preventable and that none of it comes from our sort of human nature, our, you know, emotions, tendency to violence, greed, any of these other emotions. That it's all completely a sort of socially constructed phenomenon, which to me, I think there's basically no social science to support. And besides, uh, it also assumes that funding social Wrong. workers and social programs will just get down. Will, will, Wrong. Uh, you know, eliminate. What, 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 what's wrong? What's wrong? You're wrong, dude. There is so much social science to support the claim that all crime is caused by a lack of social workers and a lack of special funding programs and so on. I don't buy it. So, okay, so can I come in with my spiel here? Yeah, you can come in with your spiel. Okay, so the world, I claim, would be an entirely different place if everyone read... John Braithwaite's Crime, Shame, and Reintegration. Something which I think we've mentioned several times before. We have mentioned it a few times before. This book in inspired the next book called The Economy of Esteem, which uh, we are the leading South African champions of, and we're super stoked that some of our, our listeners have got, gone on to read. Um, but let's take it a step back. That book, the, the Economy of Esteem, is dedicated to John Braithwaite. So Braithwaite is an Australian criminolo criminologist, and he... He notices that America has the highest crime rate in the rich world in the 70s and 80s. But it also has the highest rate of producing PhD data-wielding theory-heavy criminologists. And that it's not just producing them, it's exporting them. And the big joke is, amongst third world country people, is that they're like, you know, the US is uh, exporting its criminologists and effectively it's actually just exporting its crime rates. Because the criminologists theories are part of what's causing them to have such high levels of crime. So I want to get into slightly more detail than we did before into what the major theories were, four major theories. Okay. Uh, the, the first theory is that what you need in order to combat crime is a lot of social workers with guns okay a lot of police you need a lot of police to get out there and shoot the crooks or catch the crooks and then you know with the threat of violence force them into jail cells where they get tried and then put behind bars okay then there's the theory let's call it the neoliberal theory um 
That's that a really horrid phrase. I hate. I hate neoliberalism. The term. Right. It's the most abused term in the world. Neoclassical. Neoclassical theory says, no, you're wrong. The police just make things worse because the more police you send out there, the more militarized they are, the more they kind of end up alienating the communities that they're policing and it becomes like occupied territory and that just ends up having the perverse effect that it actually drive cri drives crime up. So initially, maybe it makes things better, but in the long run, it makes things worse. Uh, and you're going to end up like China if you keep going down that road. What you really need is more social workers. You need more people getting lots of money to go out there and talk to the community and help them figure out their problems and say very nice things and explain to them about systemic racism and how uh, that oppresses them and uh, explain to them how their social identities are like mind prisons and they have to break out of the prison of whiteness and find different standards of excellence by which to judge themselves. And on top of that, you need more money to be directed at broader social welfare programs. Basically, the idea being like, if someone might commit a crime, but then you give him or her lots of money, then he's not going to commit the crime because crime yeah. is committed because people lack stuff that they want. That's and basically these guys, the theory that the defund the police people are on board with. Yes, dude. And so this theory has been around since the 60s with a lot of scholarship behind it. So I'm not saying that this is good scholarship. Let, let, let me clarify. Yeah, I didn't say, say there's no social science. I'm saying this is the social science. If you look at well, criminology, Braithwaite found these were the dominant. The, these were what the social scientists were saying. That's, that's, Just like that's, social that's scientists a, let, were saying they had to lock down the country to prevent COVID. Like, let, this, let, me, let me defend myself here. Let me defend myself here. Let me defend myself here. You are completely correct. What I should have said was there's no good, respectable, sensible social science. <laughs> Very Continue. Good. Okay. So first theory, you need more social workers with guns. Second theory, you need more social workers without guns and to give the criminals money before they do crime. Potential criminals money before they do crime. The third theory is that the reason people do crime is because crime is an antisocial behavior by definition. So the reason people are doing it is because they've already got an antisocial way of thinking. Then they, you know, they're not treating the world like friends. They're not treating strangers with the dignity that they deserve. Yeah, or they see other if it's people as, their wives. Yeah, they see people, other people as prey rather than as a fellow human being. So, so they're like, crime doesn't cause antisocial ways of thinking. Antisocial ways of thinking cause crime. And the way that you get antisocial ways of thinking is by shunning and shaming and disesteeming people. You make people feel lesser than, and then they feel like, well, if the world's turned its back on me, I'm going to turn my back on the world. That's a quote from The Lion King, by the way. Uh, <laughs> is that from Scar? Does, does the villain say that? No, no. Uh, I think uh, uh, Pumbaa and Timon say that. It's a very good Matata thing, this is the warm fuzziness, yes. right? This is Africa burn. Don't judge people. So these, this is what Braithwaite called the liberal non-interventionist, radical non-interventionism. So here the thought is you need to get society to stop shaming criminals, to sh stop shaming criminal behavior. You've got to just spread warm, fuzzy, gooey love all around and, and, just, and, just, and just, just, beat it with, just beat it with hugs, dude. 
Okay. Feel so those are the. So the fourth major theory is Marxism, and according to Marxism, property is theft already. So criminals are just revolutionaries. And they're just fighting against the oppression of the system. Uh, there yeah. is in in history, there's been a lot of work done on this, where they've tried uh, Marxists tried to claim that bandits who of course appear throughout uh, historical records, are really just local resistance fighters fighting against the powers that be. Yep. So it, we're all we're all noble pirate. We're all Robin Hood. Every crook is Robin Hood. Okay? Okay. So when Braithwaite does his research, he cannot find anything else in 1989. Those are the four available options. And let's not delude ourselves, Nick. The first option might be the one that feels the most appealing, especially right now. The Minneapolis uh, city councillors, by the way, yesterday threatened, or this morning, threatened not to just defund the Minneapolis Police Department, but to disband it. They, right? they, they voted on it, actually. Um, and yep. I, I just, I, when I saw that, I actually had um, <laughs> something approaching a little bit of a, a crisis. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, you know, if someone had asked me, uh, a week ago, is America going to get through its current troubles? What is it? Hundred percent chance? Yes. When I heard that a city council in the United States has voted with a veto-proof majority, so the mayor can't veto this, uh, to disband to to disband within a year, so not immediately, which is slightly less insane, the entire police force, and then when asked about it, they said, "Look." We don't actually know what will replace the police, but our community does. So we're going to spend the next year asking them for ideas. So in other words, they voted to do this without a plan of what to do. Um, the plan now is to find a plan, which is quite horrifying, but continue. Yeah. Okay. So that's crazy. And in the line of that, it's tempting to say, no, the number one thing you need to do to beat crime is to boost the police force. But... Okay, and relative to no police force at all, relative to what they're asking for, that is definitely the correct answer, okay? First thing you need is a police force. But relative to you've already got a police force, dude, the data is not on your side if you think increased police spending brings down crime or if you think increased boots on the ground brings down crime. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, it's like a this, threshold. You, you know, if you're below that threshold, then crime is completely crazy. But if you're above that threshold, then crime is, it doesn't make a difference yeah. how much higher you go above it. So here's the problem. You've got that's the only sane sounding theory, the theory of 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 just kind of trying to get professional social justice, you know, state hired social justice warriors and money for potential crooks to stop crime. That doesn't work. Uh, trying to uh, sort of hug people just like no shame against criminals uh, to, to stop crime. That doesn't work. And trying to say that criminals are actually the social of the real social justice warriors that also doesn't work okay but these are the only things that braithwaite found in the literature of american criminology at the time now his argument was right that if you ask the experts you're going to get one of four really weird answers but if you go and ask most ordinary americans and you go and look, read the popular press and you see what's being said on TV and you listen to what the politicians say, they have got it. They know the answer. What you have in America today, I claim, is the inversion of that. The experts have, have developed somewhat, but those schools of thought that they developed in the 60s, 70s and 80s have now gone mainstream. So that yeah, now you switch into any of the major networks or 
even around the world or, or, or politicians, they're all giving one of these really crazy answers. Now, what is a better answer? Okay. Better answer is, okay, you need a little bit of some of that stuff, right? You need to not have anyone starving of hunger in your country. So that's the second point. You need, you need to do a little bit to sort of not have people starve. Because starvation there has to be crazy. there has to be some sort of infrastructure and state and society for people to buy into, in the first place. Um, otherwise, people police, are going to go into the arms of warlords and gangsters and stuff. Yes. So on the first level, you need a police force. You need that stability, that stable coordination of violence. On the second level, you do need social workers to be making sure that uh, parents aren't raping their children. Uh, you know, drug drug abusers and stuff like that. Social workers that, have a good job. Yeah, that they get help. And you and you need a public education system somehow or another to make sure that people are getting the skills they need to add value in a free market economy. Uh, so you, you need some redistribution of funds through a progressive tax system in that sense. Um, you need public healthcare workers to be people who get super poor and suffer great traumas and need to have some kind of psychotherapy to get through that being you know molested by their uncles or whatever. That's the kind of thing that the state should be able to provide. So that's important. At the third level, uh, of not shaming, okay, we, we, we get to the real problem. So Braithwaite says, and he, and, he, and he look he does his own research and he looks across countries in the east, in the west, in the north, in the south, he looks across the world, across time, across space. And he finds as an empirical matter that the best way to prevent crime, the best control against crime is the community within which the criminal comes from to shame criminal behavior and then to reintegrate the shamed. So it's a two-step process. And so that's like and that two -step process, confession so the and huggy, repentance. Yeah, very much. So the Catholics have, have, have got that kind of formula, right? So, so if you think about it in your own life, I've, I've been thinking about it in my own life a little bit. Like, I've definitely had some bad family squabbles. I had some awful kind of lovers tiffs when I was at university and, like, uh, doing that university thing. I've had some some tough times with friends. You know, when, when someone that you're very close to does something uh, wicked, uh, it's quite hard to deal with. You know, there's a, there's a real temptation to to change your standards and be like, nah, this isn't really bad. Uh, this person, you know, this person might have abused me. This person might have lied to me or cheated on me or done whatever, but they were doing it. It wasn't really their fault. It was someone else's fault. Uh, she cheated on me because that other guy got her drunk, let's say, you know, something like that. It's always easy because you, you don't want to completely alienate the person to then make an excuse for the person. So you don't really shame them. You make an excuse for them. Then you skip the first part of the two-step process. Or alternatively, you shame them. You feel really, really freaked out. And you're like, you have a family fight. And someone, you know, you're driving down uh, the highway. And the, the kid fighting with their parent says, you know, just drop me off right now. Parents furious. Okay, fine. Get out the car. And I'm never speaking to you again. We'll never do Christmas again. Never going to speak to you on your birthday. Never speak at all. And complete alienation. Yeah. And if you do, if you if you ostracize or dehumanize rather than shame, uh, then you miss the second step 
in the process. So those two steps are in are in 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 real are there's a sharp tension between shaming, which is an alienating or a pushing away kind of affect, and reintegration, which is an embracing affect. Uh, so that's why, and you can feel that tension in your own life, and that tension plays out in border politics all of the time. And so the mistake of the radical non-interventionists is that they say no shaming of the crooks. And as a result, they miss the first part of the process. Now, if Braithwaite's right, and I think he's right, and shaming and then reintegrating crooks are the two most important steps to uh, controlling for crime, then what they're doing is programming for more crime. Now, notice also that if you look at the, that of all four of the theories, they all neutralize the tendency to, sh to shame criminals because the police guys say, uh, the pro-police guys say, no, look, the community doesn't have to worry about it. The police are going to take care of it. The pro-social uh, worker guys say, no, you, the community mustn't get involved in this because they don't, they haven't gotten the trained professional expertise to know how to deal with it. You need the trained professionals to do it and you guys stay out of it. The third theory says, okay, no, the community must get involved, but it must get involved by valorizing and vindicating and boosting the esteem of the criminals. All three of those things neutralize the force to shame. And then the Marxists make it even worse because they say the criminals are actually heroes. Now, how has this played out in Well, you know, I, I just want to stop you here. This sounds a yeah. lot like something else we've been saying a lot recently regarding uh, lockdowns. <laughs> yeah, right? There's, if you have people, it, the economy of esteem, the nature of human beings to control one another's behavior by dirty looks and high fives, by yeah, dude, well done, and oh, come on, man, do better. You know, that is that is the easiest thing to overlook uh, yeah. somehow for people who are obsessed with the state, either with keeping the state away or with getting more state control. But, because the iron fist of the law always aims to do what, what would otherwise be done by the economy of its team. And so, okay, so when you say abolish, so, here, so here's my, my take on, on, on George Floyd is that I think one of the most, after the fact that his killing was was brutal and heinous, the next thing that everyone should know was that he was a highly disesteemable person. Yeah. I think this is an essential part of the story. Uh, you know, he, sorry, Nick. And this is, this is something that some factions of the American right have actually made a sort of big deal about. They said, well, you know, you know, can, can you blame the cops? He was, after all, this... Uh, you know, he was on drugs at the time. He had a bad history where he had um, uh, he was convicted of, of of basically threatening people of, of, of a pregnant woman. Um, he had done all these bad things. So why should we be sad that uh, he got killed? This is what some sort of radical groups on the American right, right have said. Yeah, yeah, right wing. And that's um, and that's really dumb. And then everyone on the left just ignores his bad history. Mm. And so they're both but, missing the fundamental point of the rule of law, which is that it is out there not to protect the valorous and the rich and the glorious who will be protected anyway by their allies and by their money. Yeah. The point of the rule of the law is to, is to protect the despicable. It's to protect the weak. It's to protect the unjust. It's to protect the vulnerable. It's to protect the exposed. The and that's what they should have done. On the assumption that we can't always tell ahead of time who those people are, and so we use legal process to determine, you know, who is 
worthy of punishment and who is worthy of protection. Um, and in this no, case, George he, Floyd w- was was worthy yeah, of protection but, because he wasn't resisting, yeah. wasn't doing anything violent. Uh, he was basically pinned down by three cops and strangled with a knee. And it and it cuts both ways, right? Those cops are currently, you know, if you threw those cops to the mob, they would be ripped limb from limb. Yeah. They, if, but if it's you the put root, them in- why? Because they're despicable. Because you look at the video and you can see despicable, callous behavior, right? And he's crying but out that he protected. can't breathe. By the same rule of law, they, are in, they have the right to the same due process that they failed to honor in his case. And that's the legal lesson. That's also the moral lesson. I can't believe that Christians have been saying, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd is a great martyr. I cannot believe that. When they should Mm. be saying, Lord Jesus Christ says, love thine enemy. This guy was 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 a really morally weak character. He, he he got so many second chances, and he was still on drugs when he was caught. But that's not a reason not to love him. We must love him with that very clearly in our eyes. We do not mm. look away from the wickedness, right? When I say we, I I I, sh- I shouldn't speak. I'm not a, I you know I, I can't um, claim membership of that particular tradition in 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 the deepest way but i but you know i'm i'm well schooled in christian virtues and it's and, and I, f- I find it completely uh hypocritical it, it seems like a complete dereliction of duty for any christian at this point not to point out george floyd's moral weakness precisely to highlight the fact that it is in the face of that moral weakness that christians have a duty to show that respect that all human beings uh deserve nevertheless course um you know and and likewise uh regardless of what he may have done in the past it's not just for for justice to be meted out on a pay, on a pavement somewhere uh by someone yeah. who you know who may have had some past history with him this is another interesting part of the story actually is that he uh he allegedly had worked as a bouncer at a nightclub at the same time as the cop who actually ended up killing him um, which is an interesting detail to the story that's sort of gotten lost uh, in all the noise. Yeah. And uh, one wonders whether there might actually be more to the story that it might have been, the cop may have been treating him so roughly because they had some sort of bad personal history. Um, but of but course, so, that doesn't really so, fit narrative so yeah. nicely. <laughs> but just the check card plays out. Let's say that what you wanted to do, let's say you were a, a gremlin and you hated... You hated human beings. You just wanted hum- you wanted civilization to destroy itself. You know that if you can increase crime rates, if you can take away the controls of crime, you can increase crime rates, that nasty right-wingers are going to uh, use that to justify all kinds of racial doctrines, which themselves are going to reinforce uh, Antifa-style killings, which themselves are eventually going to get, you know, mass cities to get burned and looted, and uh, you know, uh, and 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 to get this perpetuation of madness. What would you do? You would you would try everything that you can to obliterate the societal pressures to get that two-step process of shame, then reintegrate, going. Now. The theory that we all are equal in the eyes of the law is a precondition of shame and then reintegrate. It's the precondition of of the even when we are the most suspicious of you, even when we are like certain that you've killed someone, 
we still don't treat you like an animal. We still no. give you the right to legal representation. We still give you the right to due process. We still give you the right to be protected from other criminals by the police, right? That's how you can tell when we get to the reintegration stage that we never wanted to excommunicate you, that we never thought you were a devil. We always thought you were a human being deserving of some, some respect. So that, that reintegrative equality before the law point is completely ignored by everyone who refuses to mention that George Floyd had done a bad, some bad things before and that he was super high when he got caught and all that. Okay. The next thing that's ignored uh, is that- And as you pointed yeah, out, he also had uh, COVID. <laughs> and he had COVID, so he's potentially a COVID spreader. Okay. So, you know- Not a good of reason- the, all all of the all of the the trend lines of our all of the of our discussion of our global uh, arguments and policy discussions seem yeah. to be linked together in a strange way <laughs> it is like that i mean this is such a this is such a paradigm exemplar this is this case really gets to the nub of it the next thing you want to do so you've you've undermined the reintegration side by somehow having this whole narrative get detached from the idea that the rule of law is what protected Floyd George or should have protected Floyd George and not his personal uh, you know, status as a father of, of five kids or, or, yeah. or six kids, as the case may be. Um, the second thing that you'd want to undo is the first step, is shaming criminality. Mm. Well, what do you have immediately after Floyd George's murder? You've got looting, you've got riots, you've got the murder of David Dawn, You've got various other killings. And what is the message being pumped out of CNN, MSNBC, uh, BBC, New York Times. out of the New York Times? What is the message being relentlessly shoved down the throats of everyone? Don't tell us not to loot. Don't tell us not to kill. This is about something bigger than that. There this is, is our justified rage. It's the voice of the unheard. It's the uh, There's an entire cottage industry of... Um, People out there, you know, saying that writing is actually, it's like that Marxist thing. The writers are the real heroes because they're expressing the true authentic uh, will of the people. Very sort of French revolutionary edge to this whole thing. So we've got, so we've, we, we are the, the, the major uh, profiteers of the esteem economy. Those esteem entrepreneurs who turn likes and clicks and eyeballs into money. As I suppose we're trying to do, but we're, we're obviously not as successful. The guys who really minting it, who are making billions and billions of dollars, they use their platforms to deeply obliterate, to, uh, to decimate any shame directed at criminals and criminal behavior, thereby eradicating the first of the two-step sort of necessary social program uh, in the esteem distribution to, to control for crime. What is the upshot? Well, you can expect for the next few years that there's going to be higher crime rates, that more people are going to feel justified in doing crime, that like Tony and Genie, if they get caught and sent to jail, their families and their friends and uh, people in the newspapers are going to celebrate them and say that they're truly social justice warriors and that they're fighting an oppressive system. And that is going to signal to other people that when they're thinking about doing a crime and they wonder, I wonder if my mom sees my name in the newspaper as a criminal, whether she's going to feel ashamed of all of the love and energy that you put into my life or whether she's going to feel like, hey, I'm actually kind of a hero. I'm actually kind of a martyr. Oh, no, she's going to think the latter. I guess that's, you know, going to be fine yeah. if I do the crime then, even if I get caught. So yeah. you expect crime rates to go up. And on top of that, you throw a spanner into the works by disbanding as many police forces as you can 
And let's, and and let's, and let's not you have the perfect them. recipe for, for, for increased crime rates, increased states of anarchy, and then increased backlashes against that with more militarized police, more militarized, more social welfare programs, more debt, which crashes the economy, actually undermining the, 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 the poor, particularly black people because they are overrepresented in America's poor. And that will then reinforce combined with the higher crime levels, more of this race narrative thing. I mean, this is, as, as my friend uh, Rian Malone says, the planes are coming. Like, if you wanted no. to program for a second American civil war, which would play out in a very different way, largely led by sort of efforts at secession that, that really do become serious and legitimate and and proper states of anarchy where, where, where there's mass looting and torching of cities and so on. This is, this is exactly what you do. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't, if, if you were an evil demon with mass awesome powers, you couldn't do a better job of ripping America apart than what's happening right now. And uh, let's not forget, of course, that, you know, if if one of the issues here, which a lot of people have, of course, talked about on the Black Lives Matter side, which is the racial attitudes of Americans, is seeing white people kneeling in the streets begging for forgiveness for because of the color of their skin. Uh, is that going to improve racial tensions or not? And the answer is not. Right now, there is going. They, they are breeding a gener. This this whole mess, the whole sort of nasty turn that this thing has taken, is breeding a generation of nasty backlashing reactionary uh, white dudes, uh, who are not going to you know who are, who are, who are going to respond to this stuff in toxic and evil ways, and that's well, that's not good. <laughs> no, no, dude, it is um, very I've, very you not know, good. And the kind of thing I'm talking about is so, you know, uh, this is something that that enraged me was the defacing of a statue of Winston Churchill in London, where the the the, the protesters, although you know that that protest was more like a riot than a protest, uh, graffitied on his statue. They crossed out his name and they wrote, "Was a racist." Churchill was a racist. And then they strapped a sort of signs to him and threw stuff at, at the statue and stuff like that. Like, firstly, there's a sort of grossness there that, you know, one of the guys who was singularly responsible for helping to defeat the, the greatest, most racist menace of all time, Nazi Germany, uh, that his entire legacy, which is a very complicated and long one, can be reduced to was a racist, is firstly infuriating. Um and secondly, someone, you know, there was, of course, people fighting about this on Twitter in the replies to the, the video of this. And there was a woman who was claiming to be affiliated with the protesters who said, uh, uh, you know, this is what you people deserve. You're, you know, you're evil. Uh, and then someone replied to her, well, if it's this is why do you come to this country and complain about us like this? Go home to where you come from. And she said, with pleasure. And. It was nasty. Uh, we are we are in a very bad place because of this, and it's. I cannot think of anything more counterproductive than these protests right now, or not these protests rather, but the the violent protests amongst them, because there have been protests that are relatively peaceful. Um, you know, the, dude, the, and mixed in with this thing. Are, in the last two hundred years of history, dude, peaceful protests are such a powerful thing. 
And if you want to just look at the most reasonable, my favorite protests of recent times were the protests in South Korea against uh, the nepotistic corruption that had happened at the level of their presidency, sort of, you know, kind of uh, state-owned enterprises that had been privatized, but were still kind of getting soft no. pedals and kickback politicians. And South Koreans, like hundreds of thousands of South Koreans, were the candle protests. They were going out every weekend because you can't do it during the week because you're too tired after work. Every weekend going out <laughs> in the streets of Seoul and lighting their candles. And they did it for months. And guess what? Their, their last two leaders are, are... On trial for corruption, I believe. Or, yeah. or in jail. They've um, been deposed from power. One's in jail, one's in home house arrest. They succeeded without violence. Um, they've been actually... The, the, if you look through the annals of history, the number of times that peaceful, thoughtful, considered, determined protest has made very real changes um, is actually far more than a lot of people would assume, especially when you're working within a liberal order. But well, I don't one know of the how things that these, was ended, it, you know, through peaceful protest. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the one of the tricks that the that a lot of the sort of more radical protesters have pulled is to assume that all of this is justified because America is not a liberal order, that they're not working within a liberal framework, and that they need to resort to violence because the you know, voting is not effective or doesn't really mean anything. This is which, quite frankly, yeah, which quite frankly is, is, is rubbish, actually. If you can't tell the difference between America in 2020 and you know, North Korea... <laughs> Then you really don't deserve a place at the public stage. You shouldn't be taken seriously. So, so I think one of the things that's going on here, one of the reasons I like to talk about a scheme so much, is, is, is because I am determined as far as I can with what little voice that I have, to pour cold water on the silliness of esteem exchanges. So, what do I mean by that? Like I've been chilling out with my nephew and niece. Uh, seven and four years old and they get to a point in a fight where they're just shouting at each other there's like no attempts at reason at all it's just you're bad no you're bad no you're bad no you're bad right and and look there's there's like there's this there's this uh, school of philosophy uh called uh emotivism uh simon blackburn's an oxford professor of ethics uh, according to which, and it's, it's sort of dates back for the last 50 years, the thought is that all moral language can just be translated into boo or yay, right? Basically yeah. esteem terms. And the thing is, that's not true, okay? Uh, but it is, it's almost, it's sort of true enough, as it were, that if you allow yourself, if you're not careful to look at your own esteem motivations, and your own tendency in a fight to become cruel and nasty and, and abandon reason and just become sarcastic and mean and vicious, then, and, and reduce, for example, you know, that thing you said about Winston Churchill is a perfect example of that. It's just a boo. There's no, there's no yeah. content to that argument. There's no syllogism. There's no empirical efforts at insight. It's just boo. And, and some people are really good at it. Like Christopher Hitchens, I'm a great fan of his writing, but a lot of his writing about religion just amounted to like boo religion. Yeah. Um, and sometimes nana, it was kind of, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's and 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 sometimes that was great and sometimes it was a bit silly, right? Anyway, so we mm. all have that tendency. And when we're having a drink together, I think it's great to kind of relax your 
preciousness, one's preciousness about uh, the inferential calculus called logic, about empirical claims, and just kind of degrade into, you know, who do we like, who do we not like, boo them, yay them. But yeah, in the public square, it's it's a really easy way to abandon reason. If you forget about the esteem economy, then you just become a, a little boo-yay machine. Mm. And uh, you get your fellow yays by yaying the same thing that other people are yaying and booing the same thing other people are booing. And you kind of climb up and down the pyramid and you get your likes and, and avoid your dislikes accordingly. And I think that that's sort of that's kind of like the most profound enemy of the democratic process that is if you if you read 19th century literature if you read the likes of of dickens and his terror at the mob his terrifying descriptions of what a mob mentality is it mm. wasn't and and george orwell's terrifying uh, sort of writing about a groupthink precisely what happens is that uh you 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 abandon reason in exchange for picking up uh a shared boo or yay. And it's yeah. and it's something that we're all really good at doing when we watch sports matches and we all go yay when our guy scores a try or kicks a goal or does the high jump really well and we all go boo when the other team does it or the ref gives our guy a red card <laughs> or whatever. And that feels thrilling, dude. I mean, it is like one of the most thrilling fe human feelings that there is. But if you, if you confuse I've, I've politics for myself, sports, actually. Uh, you get I've blood on the myself. Yeah, um, I was in a... In, in what, what turned basically into a street battle. Um, I was at a DA march and uh, was in favor of the youth wage subsidy, which is the DA policy at the time. And uh, Kosatu came and basically threw bricks at the DA people. And uh, some DA people threw bricks back. And I've never felt a more exhilarating, electrifying thing in my life. It was, it was better than drugs. <laughs> It was yeah. so good. Um, it is. That's but also take drugs, fake that feeling. I, I'm I'm pretty. You know, I can be quite risk averse in a lot of ways in my normal life. But when I was in that moment, I didn't care for my personal safety at all. It was like someone had just switched off all my self preservation instincts. I was yeah. just screaming and shouting and like sort of ignoring the bricks landing around me. It was, on reflection, actually quite horrifying that I had being sort of hijacked by this lizard brain part of my uh, psyche. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I fear the mob today, because when passions are up, uh, it can cause a lot of nonsense. That's exactly why in constitutions we have, you know, you need a two-thirds majority to change certain fundamentals of the, of the constitution. Um, yes. Because uh, everyone who's designed democratic systems knows that sometimes people's blood gets up about a certain issue for right or for wrong, and they can make decisions that they might very well regret later. And, and, and one of the easiest ways to see this in the, in the George Floyd case is about you go out there at a dinner party or a cocktail or in the public square if you've got a, if you've got a microphone and say, here's one of the things about George Floyd that I think we all need to attend to. That guy uh, was in moral disrepair. And all of the people who think it's important to protest his killing are going to try and shut you up and they're going to try and boo you. Why? Because you're dissing George Floyd, right? Yeah. And all of the guys who are blindly pro the police are going to diss you when you say the next thing, which is, and it's precisely 
in such cases that it's most important to emphasize that the police need to be out there to protect, uh, uh, you know, people of of poor moral character. So you're going to be exactly. you're going to be shouted down by the by the yay polices and by the yay George Floyds, and and my claim is that if you don't get that the most important thing about George Floyd. Uh, other than the fact that he was killed, was the fact that he was he was of uh, poor moral character. Then you don't get the basic principle of the rule of law, equality before the law, law and order, what the criminal justice system is supposed to be about. You obliterate the ability of society to impose the two-step system of shaming the criminals, and then eventually. Uh, in the fullness of time, opening a path to them if they do their own damn mm-hmm. hard work of being reintegrated into society, you completely just program for more of the same. Uh, if you if you're in an esteem world where there is where it's either yay George Floyd or yay the police, and that's the esteem world that that I think America has kind of l- l- sort of lulled itself into through 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 just damn complacency. And, and also, to and, be honest, opportunism as, by esteemed entrepreneurs who yeah, exactly who, who know that that industry, that sort of uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm tempted to call it a cottage industry, but that 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 industry of of um, people who make their money off of activism, who make their money off of opinion writing, who make their money off of grandstanding on moral issues in public, has been incredibly toxic for American political discourse. How? Do you get yourself a spot on a cable news network? Uh, you be, you moral grandstand as a legislature, as a legislator, or as an activist, and you can get yourself a nice, uh, you know, uh, contributor role on. Depending on and for everyone, you can know, there's Fox News if you're on the right. There's yeah. One American News if you're on the super pro Trump right. Um, there's yeah. uh, MSNBC if you're on the left, uh, or CNN if you're on the super anti-Trump left. And it's really toxic because there's extreme. It's like an intersection of uh, of power, um, property, and prestige uh, yes. to encourage you to do these things, and that's really not good for the health of the republic. And so, as goes America, so does the rest of the world. Um, the EFF has already seized onto you know the, the the conversations about race here. You know, the EFF as from what I've heard was basically telling, encouraging the government to Scorpion Donor was, I think, what one of the MPs may have said. Um, yeah. Uh, people, you know, this is what they're saying behind closed doors to the government. But then they're going out dude, there and they're protesting Collins Cause's death. Dude, and and here's here's the amazing thing. So advocate uh, Tendeka Ngai Torbi is uh, representing the Cause of Family, right? And that case, I mean, he was killed in April, right? Yeah. So the the, the a lot of the court proceedings happened in May. <coughs> Dude, Tendeka Nkaitobi's argument, I'm, uh, I can quote directly here, uh, if you give me a moment. He said, it is clear, sorry, just give me a moment while I scroll up to find this quote. Uh, uh, here it is. Um, uh, sorry, I should have lined this up perfectly. <laughs> no one, he no said one's ever accused was, this show of being well produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's uh, it's kind of one of the signals we're trying to send, I suppose. Uh, um, this is not like a slick uh, movie. This is not a slick operation. Like this a- is not the New York Times podcast. 
So he said, I quote, there is very little doubt why the soldiers behaved the way they did. It is the direct instructions under Operation Notlela, Operation Lockdown. Uh, and then he went on to argue that the internal instructions of Operation Notlela do the opposite of comply with the Constitution. Okay, so his argument before the court was that the lockdown was irrational, that the instructions given were irrational, that they weren't told properly to protect the people, uh, and no argument about systemic racism, right? Yeah. But then on the political stage, you get the opposite. And it's just, I mean, I do think, so, 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 okay, so we've talked a bit about the esteem, uh, you know, the, the getting your blood going. But let's remember uh, the key insight of, 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 of Pettit and Brennan in their book on the economy of esteem is that just as with power, if you want to get power, work together, make a state, make a party, make an army, make a gang. If you want to get property, get together, make a company, make a limited liability corporation. Uh, if you want to really get esteem going for yourself, you need to make an esteem team. Mm. Uh, and the way that an esteem team works is that, you know, any member of the team gets esteem if any if the team gets esteem or any other member of the team gets esteem. So this is exactly, you know, somehow the Springboks win the rugby match or Manchester United wins the soccer match and all the fans feel better about themselves, even though they didn't lift a finger to make uh, a difference. Despite the fact that I've touched a rugby ball twice in my life, I feel some sort of pride. <laughs> yeah. So we, know, we all know what it's like. Okay. <laughs> so what are the esteem teams that are... The, the Pan-African or, or Black esteem team, the global Black esteem team, has become just clearly one of the more dangerous esteem teams and one of the more potent esteem teams in the world. Okay? And the, the thing to notice about this team is that it's not the same as everyone who's black. It's the same as everyone who feels personal pride at the achievements of other black people. And feel personal shame at the shunning of other black people qua blackness, right? Yeah. So it's like you can see it when there's movie awards or there's uh, racing driver awards and people are like, I'm so glad a black guy won that. That makes me feel good about myself. A lot no, of black like, people don't like, feel that way. It's, it's one of the reasons that uh, certain films are called Oscar bait, right? And they always have the same things, which is usually a wise uh, uh, black mentor character, a historical drama, usually about racism by whites. Uh, there's like a, it's like a period piece. It has all these elements because they sort of mold around the esteem teams of the people who vote in the, um, on, the, exactly. on the Academy Awards. Yeah. And who notably missed out on what I consider to be the best 21st century South African film, Nume Scholi, which is nominated, but colored guys don't really fit into the esteem universe of America, so dead on arrival. Uh, even yeah. though it is, I would say, a much better movie than Sotsi, for example. Um, yeah. But the the thing about, so I just want, I just want, I just want to make it perfectly clear: the black esteem team does not include all black people. A lot of black people, when they do well, Kanye West is like, no, dude, this is my, this is me, I'm good. This is not. All black people. Yes. This is me. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> too, he's too much of a narcissist to be like on the black <laughs> to, team. To compromise with an esteem team. No. <laughs> okay. It's me and my fans. Okay. 
and uh, and, there, and there's also much more serious uh, black people who like that. Um, and there are a lot of white people, and as it turns out, Japanese people who are on the blackest team team. Right. Well, not that Who many feel... Japanese people. The the protest in Japan was quite small because the Japanese, you know, they they do politics a little bit differently than most of the world. But there's a lot of white people on the Black Esteem team. There's a lot of white people yeah. who like. I'm so proud, dude. I was so proud that we won the World Cup, and I was so proud that Sio Kalisi led the team because he is physically far from the most talented flanker in the world, but he showed real leadership. And I thought if you are going to take a political message there, here's the first captain of a South African rugby team who openly opposed racial quotas at the level of the South African rugby team. Mm. Uh, as a non-racialist, I do kind of think there's a non-racialist team team. And if a non-racialist uh, <laughs> does something great like that, then I do feel a kind of connection to it. But but most white people who commented on it were like, well, I'm super glad that glad that we got a black captain winning the game, leading the team that won the game. Uh, so Team Black is like uh, is is uh, one of the reasons that it's dangerous in South Africa is that it it means the following thing: if you are a member of Team Black, either as a white person or a black person or an Indian person or a colored person, whatever your race is, if you're part of Team Black, then anytime a black person gets dissed, you feel dissed. Mm. And so you've got this aversion to the dissing of black people, even if it's justified. So when uh, people say don't vote for Jacob Zuma in 2008, you say, you know, Peter Bruce, who's one of the great team black guys in South Africa, he <laughs> says, no, you can't say that. That's just mean. That's just rude. That's just racist. You also, the the, the, is, you also get the flip side of that, which is uh, where people say they see a black person do something bad. And then they're on Team Black and they say, oh, why have you embarrassed us all like this? Uh, yeah. Which is stupid. <laughs> yeah. It, again, it gets in the way of the shame and then reintegrate two-step process. Because you've got to shame that individual. You've got to say, yeah. dude, you are letting yourself down here. And insofar as you're letting anyone else down, you're letting down your parents. If they brought you up and put love and care into your life, you're letting them down. If you went to a good school, uh, you're letting them down. Uh, if you've got good friends and brothers and sisters, you're letting them down. And if you've got bad people around you, what often happens is it's like, well, this is not your fault because they're bad people around you. Anything that gets in the way of directing that very precious thing of like personal criticism at a particular person for a particular, particular behavior that says you're not doomed to be like this forever, but, you, but you, 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 you've got to sort yourself out, get yeah. your act together. Anything that gets in the way of that is a deep problem. And look how deep the problem has gone. Like in one of the craziest moments, Alan Bussack gets sent to jail. He's an ANC guy. He's convicted of corruption in 99 or 2000. And he's carried on the soldiers, on the, on, on the, on the shoulders of his supporters to jail. Because they say, no, this is just white supremacy kind of taking him out, slash maybe some kind of internal coup. He appeals for a presidential pardon. He doesn't get it until eventually he sort of gets it on the behind the behind. Then Tony Ngani gets convicted of corruption like 2003 or whatever it was. He gets ululated and celebrated into jail. And and literally at the time, I remember you know, in my community, most people black, uh, black and white people 
the guys who were on Team Black were like, dude, he's being anointed into the high order of, you know, struggle heroes who were sent to jail, like Nelson Mandela and Walter Sassoon. Not Walter, yeah. Um, Mandela and Trevor Manuel and so on. So it's like now Tony and Gany, Ramaphosa decides (laughs) to appoint the hero Tony Ngeni to be the head of the ANC's, uh, well, he doesn't appoint him, but the ANC appoints him under Ramaphosa in 2018 to be the head of the anti-corruption branch of the ANC. So it's like in South Africa's particular case, one of the problems that apartheid landed us with was that some of the best South Africans went to jail under apartheid because South Africa really was that kind of unjust system where if you go to jail, if you were one of the Ravonia trialists, that is a badge of honor that you have there. And society had to come to know that. And initially, a lot of white society rejected it, and even some of black society rejected it. But by 94, you know, more or less everyone was of agreement that if you had been to jail to fight apartheid, then you were, you were, you had that prestige of being a struggle yeah. hero. And what we needed to do was say that was true it's not true anymore we needed to change the norm to make it perfectly clear that now if you go to jail for corruption lying stealing cheating whatever it is murdering raping that's a straight-up shame you're nothing then like you're, mandela yeah you're nothing you're full like, and you need to re-examine your life yeah and it has and and it, it's it's not all black people are bad if you're a black person who goes to jail it's not all white people are murderous uh uh you know, Valentine's Day killers, if a white person does that, that yeah. you, you need to take personal responsibility. And the flip side of taking personal responsibility is we need to give you a sense of personal responsibility by imposing our, our blame and shame at an individual level. So once again, we come to uh, the conclusion of don't be racist and trust people to do what's the right thing. Um <laughs> I feel like we could almost replace all of our podcast episodes with that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, our underlying principles are are pretty old school, but I do think that there's uh, something special about the way that the George Floyd um, response has highlighted that South Africa, I mean, South Africa's got, the, in a way, the craziest response. Right. We haven't called to abolish the police, but we have somehow gone from saying because George Floyd was killed by white people with imputed motivation of racism. Therefore, white supremacy is responsible for the murders of Collins Causa, Sibusiso, Amos, Pietrus Michels and others. Uh, Which is like, (laughs) if anything, it's even crazier than celebrating Tony Yengeni as a struggle hero for going to jail in 2003, or celebrating Winnie Madikizela Mandela as as kind of doing struggle heroism work when she was convicted of corruption in the 2000s. This is even crazier, because at least those are individual politicians. This is like our own criminal justice system that has been so aggressively transformed by, amongst other things, the SAPS uh, convention that it would rather leave a post open than promote a white person, which resulted in a constitutional court case where the constitutional court affirmed that. We've had such aggressive transformation that like 10% of the police force, 10% of the army are white, and yet 
somehow the murder of all these guys is because of white supremacy. And that just leads again to this, like one of the bizarre things about people who are on team black, whether they're black or white, is that they almost inevitably come to the position of denying black agency, yeah. right? Denying the agency of black individuals. It's like you, you have an entire top brass in the military. You have 32 of the 33 top managers in the police from the minister down to the lieutenant general that are all black. You've got a mostly vast, super majority, 80%, 90% uh, black Indian police force and army. But you can't see them. They're like, I mean, it, 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 leaves, it leaves one it's with so the question, if it leaves one with the question, if you do all that and you haven't defeated white supremacy, I don't think there's much hope for defeating white supremacy, which is, of course, rubbish because, you know, you can actually undo these things. Um, we are running. Uh, uh, I want to answer that. Here. I want to say one more thing. It does one remind thing, me of like one more so the, SABC, the SABC interview where. The, where they go to the concentration camp, the white concentration camp. They're like, why are you excluding black people? It's like... That's <coughs> uh, a camp, it's, not a concentration camp. <laughs> sorry, Scott, a camp. <laughs> but this is what happens, dude. This is what happens when esteem is all that matters to you. No. Getting the likes is all that matters to you and trading in likes and dislikes, booze and yes, and there's no reason, is you end up in crazy town. You know... There's a, there's a, uh, and I'll close with this. There's a, there's a modification for one of my favorite games, which sets the, the game in uh, the period just around the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And the name of the mod is called um, When the World Stopped Making Sense. And I never thought that in my lifetime I would experience that emotion. But today I can definitely say that the world is kind of not making so much sense anymore. <laughs> because <laughs> we all seem to be in crazy town <laughs> but um anyway thanks everyone for listening uh you know we don't want to we don't want to try your patience by going a little bit too uh, far overboard uh we will be back next week um thankfully i don't seem to have had the technical problems that i had recording a podcast a little bit earlier um if you liked what you heard here if you want to support us uh please please leave a comment on the daily friend if you're listening to it there um please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and um, please become a friend of the IRR. Uh, your support helps us to do all of the stuff we do, the various opinions we give, the investigative journalism that Gabriel sometimes gets to do, um, the, uh, the, the research, the policy, all that good stuff. Um, so we'd the love to keep having The work that Nicholas used to be able to do when we were allowed to. Yeah, back, back, when, back when we lived in the free world. Anyway, <laughs> um, have a wonderful week, everyone. We're sorry we're a bit late. We will try and uh, be a little bit more on time next week, or this week, I suppose. And uh, keep that flag of liberty flying. Keep curious, too. Grr, grr.